turning your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke chapter 12 is where we will be today on Time Change Sunday. A sure sign of the last days. Uh. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Uh, If you are physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word and follow along as I read from the gospel of Luke chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. In the meantime... When so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Uh, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Are not, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, In narrative portions of Scripture, which is what the Gospel of Luke is, not everything should necessarily be understood as strictly chronological. Uh, Did these things happen? Absolutely, beyond the shadow of a doubt. Did they happen strictly in the order you're reading them? For the most part, yes, but not necessarily in that order. And in most cases, the exact order doesn't really matter. Meaning if the, if the order was reversed or changed a little bit, it wouldn't change the entire outcome of the account. It's kind of similar to you telling your friend that after church, you're going to go out to eat and then swing by the store to pick up a few things. But in reality, after church, you swing by the store and then you go out to eat. Nobody would call you a liar, right? Like, ha busted. Like, that's not true. So it's just, this is what you're doing. This is what you plan on doing. And the order of them, it doesn't necessarily matter all that much. Um, But in verse uh, 1 of chapter 12, Luke sets the stage for us, letting us know that what happens here happened during the same period of time as uh, what we read about in Luke chapter 11. With that term, in the meantime, or uh, in these circumstances, or meanwhile, or at that time, that, that opening harkens us back to what had just happened. And so look back to Luke chapter 11 and look specifically at verse 53. Uh, Luke 11, verse 53, says this, As he went away from there, Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things. Now, this is a Greek term translated as press him hard, really could be translated as hold a grudge. They began to hold a grudge. It wasn't just that they disagreed with him theologically. Uh, This was personal. In fact, they actually said as much back in verse 
45, if you look at Luke chapter 11. And so Luke chapter 11, beginning in uh, verse, oh, say 37, Jesus starts speaking. Uh, He's speaking with a Pharisee, and then he starts to pronounce judgment and condemnation through his statements of woe. In fact, in verse 42, he says, but woe to you, Pharisees. Verse 43, woe to you, Pharisees. Verse 44, woe to you. And woe is not just like, whoa, man. This is actually a statement of judgment, divine judgment, of condemnation. This is a very serious thing that Jesus is saying. And he is speaking clearly. He's speaking unapologetically. And he's speaking to the Pharisees. And then in verse 45, one of the lawyers, uh, not one of the Pharisees, but one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And so the lawyers are like, hey, I just want to let you know, I know you're pronouncing woe to the Pharisees. We're actually hearing similar things about what we're like. And so tread lightly, bro, because you're insulting us also. (laughs) Look at verse 46. I mean, you got to laugh. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. Like, boom, roasted, right? He's just like, fine, woe to you. You're right, I do. You are included in this number. And so he's not apologizing for that. And then he goes on to pronounce woe to them as well. And then in verse 53, at the end of that, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to hold a grudge, to press him hard, and to provoke him to speak about many things. Verse 54, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say these things. And so we're taking that emotion, that feeling with us in from chapter 11 into chapter 12 because Luke links it, it's inseparable. In the meantime, uh, this is what happened. In fact, there actually really was no theological debate to be had. These people aren't being like mentally stimulated by, a, by a, an awesome conversation they're having about theological things. That's not true at all. Jesus had defeated them with solid biblical truth and airtight logic. We're not surprised. He's the son of God. This is an iron sharpening iron. This is sharp iron like that of a sword. And it's aimed at Jesus by these scribes and Pharisees. Verse 1, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. And so understand, we have this emotion being carried in with us from Luke chapter 11. And quite frankly, this is a pretty scary crowd. This isn't like, wow, I bet there was a lot of, bet there was a lot of energy there. This was pretty exciting. There were thousands of people and they were trampling one another. Now, I can't relate to this exactly, but I think I can relate to it just a little bit. Because in the... Uh, Oh, New Year's Eve, 2000, coming out of 2000, going into 2001. I was living in New York City at the time and decided I wanted to go to Times Square and uh, watch the ball drop. And now I'm letting you know this, just a little bit of a side comment. If you ever have the opportunity to participate in that event, if you ever happen to find yourself in the Northeast or near New York City around uh, New Year's Eve, and you have the opportunity of thinking, maybe, like, should we go? Should we maybe go into Midtown Manhattan and watch the ball drop? It's like a YOLO thing, a, a bucket list thing. If you ever have that opportunity, you should hard pass. Right? It's miserable. It's absolutely miserable. Like, don't, if you don't have a connection, if you don't know a cop, if you don't know someone who, it's just miserable for the common person. It's miserable. 
But I decided to try it out. Now I know it's miserable. I'll never do it again. And so I went down there with my girlfriend at the time, and we were like, hey, let's just see what it's like. And all you do, it's just herding cattle. I mean, all we did the whole time, similar, like we were like walking in the wilderness for 40 years. We were just, they just, you got to go this way, you got to go this way, keep it moving, you got to move around. And by the time the ball was ready to drop at 11.59, we were nowhere near. We were nowhere near it. So could you kind of see it? No. No, I was blocks away. Blocks away. So not, not close at all. And, but here's why I'm bringing this up. At 11.59, there's this roar from the crowd. It's kind of exciting. And there's a rush over towards the general direction of where Times Square is and where you might be able to see the ball drop. And it was kind of exciting and a little scary. Like, there's a lot of us running in this same direction. This would be a terrible time to trip. Like, this was... Uh, It's exciting, but it's also, this could go wrong really fast. It was kind of scary. And so this crowd is similar to that uh, in that this this is scary. In fact, for me, it was like kind of exciting. It's New Year's Eve. We're all, we all mean well. We all want to celebrate together. And so it's nowhere near as scary as the crowd that we're talking about here. And so then I rang in the new year with my girlfriend at the time on 37th Street. You're like, what's on 37th? Nothing is on 37th Street. Nothing. It's just a dark street. There's nothing to celebrate there. And yeah, don't do it. And that's it. We broke up. I married Sarah, had a baby, moved to Kentucky. I'm not doing that. Ain't, ain't nobody got time for that. It's crazy. This was a dangerous crowd. Dangerous because of its size. I can kind of relate to that. But also dangerous because of the actual makeup of the crowd. Like the majority of this crowd had been swayed to the Pharisees' blasphemous views of Christ. They were fixed in their resentment of him, their rejection of him, their animosity toward him. They were fairly immovable. The earlier years of Jesus' ministry, like as we started out in the Gospel of Luke, they're marked with people who were excited, enthusiastic, optimistic about Jesus, at least curious about Jesus. If none of that, at the very least, they were mostly sensible people, just Kind of sensible as you read through the earlier chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Those days are gone. That's why Jesus referred to them as an evil generation back in Luke chapter 11. Jesus shifts gears and his ministry is now one of warning, one of judgment that begins in our text today and goes straight through the earlier verses in chapter 13. But there was still a somewhat smaller group within this large group that Jesus addresses here. If you look at verse 1... Uh, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his what? His disciples first. Now, those disciples, they might believe in him. The the Greek word there is actually just learner or student. And so they likely didn't believe in Jesus, like hardcore embrace him, love him. But they were still open. They were curious. They were interested. So he calls them together. Maybe they believed. They were at least interested, but they weren't hostile. And says in verse 1, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Point number one, you need to steer clear of hypocrites. Steer clear of hypocrites. Jesus employs a metaphor here and says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. You might be surprised to know I know very little about cooking. 
But the leaven of the Pharisees, that's a word that, that would have referred to yeast. And yeast is a substance that I'm told and read that even in small doses has a very permeating effect throughout the whole batch, right? A little dab will do you. So you don't need to pile it on. It might be small. It might just be a little dose, but it works its way through the entire, whatever, loaf of bread, the entire cake. You only need a little. And so Jesus makes clear to them that even in small doses, their hypocrisy is similar to leaven. It doesn't take much to impact the entire batch. Uh, In Galatians 5 and verse 9, it's not in your outline, but Paul employs the same metaphor and he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, Uh, meaning it just takes a little bit to work its way through the entire batch. And both Paul and Jesus are saying this, a little bit of false teaching, just a little bit of false teaching goes a long way among people. Just as a small amount of yeast makes a loaf of bread rise, a little bit of false teaching has the ability to infiltrate hearts, to infiltrate minds of believers. And as that happened, it infects the whole church. And sometimes when Jesus speaks of, he speaks in parables, you got to think like, I wonder what this refers to. Let me think, not that he's, he's not speaking in trick language, but you got to, sometimes he later on explains the parable. Not so in verse one, right? Like, I wonder what the leaven refers to. You obviously didn't finish reading verse one because he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? which is hypocrisy. Tells us straight up, that's what I'm talking about. Let nobody wonder. You don't have to guess. I'm talking about hypocrisy. Few things are more detrimental to people, believers and unbelievers alike, than someone whose lips say one thing and their life says something else. Believers are effective negatively as their faith and walk with Christ takes a hit when they have someone they love, someone they trust, someone they have a common bond in Christ with, only to find out that they actually didn't have that common bond. And perhaps for that other person who was just a front, the truth comes out and you see that they're actually not the person they claimed to be. Perhaps their private life looked unbelievably different from their public life. And it's detrimental to the fellowship that we have with one another. And unbelievers find that, quite frankly, unbelievable and for good reason. For that reason, God is pretty swift in condemning hypocrisy throughout the whole Bible. Pretty swift, pretty clear, pretty unapologetic. Hypocrisy plagued Israel throughout the Old Testament. We're not going to turn there, but in Ezekiel chapter 33, God uh, says this about the Jewish people in that day. Ezekiel 33 verse 31. He says this, and they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. So they're nodding. They're agreeing. They hear what's being taught. Will they do it? Definitely not. But they look on the outside like they're going to. They look like they're in agreement. But in reality, they're not going to listen. They're not going to apply. They're not going to heed what is being said. Elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, Micah laments the fact that Israel's leaders give judgment for a bribe and then claim that the Lord is in their midst so no disaster will before them, Micah 3 and verse 11. I think throughout the Bible, God addresses at least two types of hypocrisy. 
one of which you probably need to steer clear of in others and a little in yourself, the other of which you need to steer clear of in your own life. And so for a a good portion of our time today, we're going to look at what to look for when it comes to hypocrisy in other people. What are common characteristics of hypocrites and how to root out hypocrisy in our own lives? Because it's not cool if we spend our time together on Sunday morning and we're like, this is how to find out who out there stinks. And we all leave. We're like, yeah, we're awesome. They're not. We're going to find them. Like, that's not a good way to approach the word of God. But I think it's important. I think it's in the text. I think that's what Jesus talks about when he says, beware of the Pharisees, beware of their hypocrisy. And so it's not wrong for us to think through that. But I also want us to think through what are some secondary application we can apply to our own lives when it comes to hypocrisy. So we don't just leave here on a witch hunt, um, but we can also leave here looking at our own hearts and minds. And so the first type of hypocrisy is what Jesus is addressing in this text, um, what I'll call religious hypocrisy, the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They claim to believe one thing, but actually act contrary to their belief. And so in your outline, I've put four, there's probably more, but I put four common characteristics of hypocrites that we see throughout uh, the text of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament. Four common characteristics of hypocrites. They might be a hypocrite if. Uh, Number one, hypocrites focus on their outward appearance in order to hide who they truly are. Uh, Hypocrites focus on their outward appearance in order to hide who they truly are. In fact, the Greek word for hypocrite is a term that refers to an actor playing a role on a stage. It's actually what I would refer to as an amoral term, meaning it doesn't, it it wouldn't, prior to the New Testament having been penned, it wouldn't have brought to mind like this thought of negativity. It would be like, you know, someone's a plumber. You're not like, wow, he just said that? Like, yeah, he's just a plumber. Like, that doesn't bring to mind a positive or a negative, like you'd have to add a descriptor. You'd add an adjective. He's a great plumber. He's a smelly plumber. He's a terrible plumber. Like you'd have to add a descriptor. And so an actor, this is just a role. That's actually what the Greek term originated with. This is just calling this person an actor. In the New Testament, it's not amoral at all. It's literally used exclusively negatively to refer to someone who claims particularly to speak for God or to represent God or to speak God's truth, but does not. So number one, hypocrites, they're actors. They focus on their outward appearance in an effort to hide who they truly are. Mark 7 and verse 6, Jesus says this, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, what we can see on the outside, but their heart is actually far from me. Uh, Four common characteristics of hypocrites. Number two, hypocrites respond maliciously to those who expose them for what they truly are. Uh, You want to see a strong emotional response from somebody? You want to see somebody respond in a way that is, I mean, uh, uh, palpable, that you could just feel, you could sense? You want to watch the sparks fly? Expose a hypocrite for what they truly are. Matthew 22 and verse 18, Jesus says this, uh, but Jesus, aware of their what? Malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? And so when you expose somebody for what they truly are, when someone has been caught 
Like you said this, but you did this. You say this, but you do that. Uh, You said this to this person, but you said that to that person. They can both be wrong, but they can't both be right. Which one is it? Uh, You will see malice in someone's life. You'll see them respond very emotionally, uh, usually angrily, because they work pretty hard to maintain these two fronts in front of these two people or two groups of people. It is very common to see people respond maliciously when they've been found out to be hypocritical. Uh, Hypocrites focus on their outward appearance in order to hide who they truly are. Hypocrites respond maliciously to those who expose them for what they truly are. Number three, hypocrites lack discernment. Uh, Hypocrites lack discernment. Uh, They may come off as thinking they have an inside scoop. They may come off as somebody who thinks that they have a keen awareness of what's really going on. But when in reality, it actually couldn't be more untrue. Couldn't be more the opposite. Uh, Jesus highlights this later in Luke chapter 12 and verse 56 when he says, You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? In other words, you, you think you're so wise in knowing how to interpret the weather, interpret the things that are happening, look to the future, but you can't even interpret and discern what's happening right now, that he is the very son of God, that the, he is preaching the gospel, he is the Messiah. And so he's saying, you're hypocritical. You lack the discernment to to understand well what is taking place. And finally, hypocrites lack compassion. As a result of striving to maintain this front, it takes all their effort and all their focus, and so they lack compassion. And we have an example of that that we haven't gotten to yet, but it's in Luke chapter 13, uh, where there's a woman who uh, was unbelievably hurt and plagued in her back specifically for years and years and years. Uh, Luke 13, verse 13 in your outline, it says, and he, Jesus, laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. So instead of saying, wow, look what, has, look what God has done. Look what Christ has done. He healed this woman who's been bent over and her back has been twisted and and she's been hurt and walking around in pain for years and years and years. They're so out to get Jesus that they overlook the good that was taking place. And it's just like, just a flag on the play. Look, look at the day he did it on. Look at when he chose to be nice. Stone him. Zero compassion. They have one job. And that is to attack Jesus. And so hypocrites lack compassion. And so we do well to make sure that we guard against hypocrisy in the relationships that we have with other people. Specifically in our context today of how it deals with false teaching. We do well to guard against false teaching. But listen to me. You're not going to ever be able to do that if you don't have a regular, consistent diet of God's word in your life. If the only time you're interacting with God's word is when you are in church or when you are in community group and you're not, as on a regular basis, having some sort of a consistent time in God's word, you're not going to be able to discern between truth and error. You're going to start to go with your own feelings, with your own interpretation, with your own discernment. But if it's not rooted in the word of God and rooted in scripture, you're going to be off. Now, granted, the elders are tasked with 
teaching the flock, protecting the flock specifically from false teaching. And we'll do well, but we're not, we're, we'll strive to really please the Lord and to do well in that area. We're not going to be with you at all, all, all times. We'll put the fires out whenever we can. We will correct, we will rebuke, we will admonish, we will exhort. But we're not going to walk through holding hands with you throughout your life. You're responsible to guard yourself against false teachings so that you're able to say, this doesn't square with Scripture. This does not line up. It doesn't seem, this doesn't seem right. Otherwise, you're liable to be led astray. But like I said before, I don't want to only be looking for hypocrisy in other people. Uh, Point number two, you need to guard against hypocrisy in your own life, in my own life. Remember in verse 1, Jesus was talking to disciples. People who were either interested in him or believed in him. And so hypocrisy is not something that is unique to unbelieving Pharisees. There's ample ink dedicated in the New Testament instructing believers to be aware of hypocrisy in our own lives. We think back to our time uh, throughout the series in the book of Acts, right? Maybe the most notorious hypocrites in the early church would have been Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, when Ananias and Sapphira lie about how much of what they have given to the church. And God strikes Ananias dead. And as they're carrying him out, as they're carrying him out, Sapphira puts up the same front, strikes her dead. God takes hypocrisy very, very seriously. They were in the church. We think of things that we read about elsewhere in Scripture. We couldn't go into them all today, but the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. First Peter 2 and verse 1, uh, the Apostle Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, it's not in your outline, we're not going to go there, but Paul talks about false brothers and sisters who were brought in to the Galatian church to spy, to see how much freedom they were really exercising in Christ. In fact, later in that same chapter, the apostle Peter temporarily fell into hypocrisy and Paul had to publicly rebuke him, opposed him to his face. So hypocrisy is not something we only see among uh, unbelievers, among Pharisees, among people who hate Jesus. It can even be found within the rank and file of those who love Jesus. Surely you and I are not exempt. And so what about you? Do you see hypocrisy in your own life? Are there areas of your life that don't quite square up with what you're known to be or known to believe? It's an important thing to consider, and we can't consider it completely in depth today, but I want to talk about another type of hypocrisy as a secondary application for us that I'm calling judgmental hypocrisy. Judgmental hypocrisy, when we look down on others, uh, despite the fact that we are also flawed. Uh, And for that, I'm going to leave Luke 12 for a minute and go to the gospel of Matthew chapter 7. So 
We'll be back to Luke 12 in a moment, but turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Uh, This is the middle, towards the end, but in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. So judge not that you not be judged. So usually people who are judged are judgy themselves. In fact, the quickest way to invite judgment is for you to be judgy. Then verse 2 says, For with the measure that you judge, or for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So I don't really know what that means. Well, think about how you feel when somebody passes judgment on you and see if you respond any way that I do. So let's say somebody is going to come up to me and go, Wow, you couldn't even tuck in your shirt? Okay, so I'm just standing there and someone's like, wow, can't even tuck in your shirt. You know what I'm now thinking about? What that person is wearing. I'm like, yeah, you're not looking so awesome yourself. Like I wasn't, wasn't starting out that way, but your natural reaction is when someone just passes judgment on you. You know, oh, wow, it seems like you're putting on a little weight. And you're like, yeah, well, you're no spring chicken yourself. Like you're, you're not thinking that way. You weren't coming in that way. But usually with the judgment that you pass on other people, people then think of you in those terms exactly the same. And so with the judgment that, with the measure of judgment that you pass on other people, people then use that to judge you. And so Jesus is saying, don't be judgmental. Not don't judge, but don't be judgy. Don't be judgmental. Don't let that be known of you, that you're a judgmental person passing judgment on everybody. Pick it up in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And so Jesus is asking a question here, and he is saying, why do you see, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not see the log that is in your own eye? And in the, in the Greek, that word that we translate log or plank, you need to understand, we're not talking about like, we're talking the difference between a speck and a stick or a speck and a twig. It's like, if you had to compare them, it's like speck to telephone pole. I mean, we're talking massively different. We're talking splinter and telephone pole. I can't fit a telephone pole on my Sonata. So I brought a bat. And if you've ever done counseling with me, it's not uncommon that I will use this. Uh, It's in my office for security mostly, but it's in my office and I will take, and I'll say, look, why do you, this is the picture. This is literally the picture of how ridiculous it would look for someone to be, for me to have a log in my eye and be like, wow, how could you leave the house today? Do you have to look in the mirror? How could you leave the house and have lumber in your eye? Do you not even care? Wow. I mean, how do you, how do you go out like that? How could you have a speck in your eye? And so Jesus is asking a question here. It It's rhetorical, but I think it's worth answering. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? It's a rhetorical question, but I also want to propose an answer. I can see you better than I can see me. You right now 
can see me better than I can see me. I've never looked directly at my forehead. I can't. I need an image. I need a selfie. I need a mirror. I need a reflection. You can. That's why you can. I, I can't see if I have something in my teeth. You can. Uh, you, you've just seen more of my body than I've ever seen. Like I've never seen, apart from a picture, I've never made a direct observation. I might have a picture of my face. I may have a picture of my backside. I may have a picture. I don't have a picture of my backside. (laughs) I've never seen it, but I also don't have a, like, I don't, you get the point. I've never made a direct observation of my face. You neither have you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but not notice the log that is in yours? Because I can see your eyes better than I can see my own. And so I'm prone to, you're prone to see what is in someone else's eyes without seeing what's in yours. You're prone to seeing the error in somebody else and not seeing the error that's in your own life. Matthew 7 verse 4 says, Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. And so it's like, hey, come here. Switch eyes. Hey, come here. You got some, you got a speck in your eye. I mean, let me, how can you, let me, come here. I'm going to take it out. You know what I'm going to end up doing? I'm going to end up hurting people. Uh, People who seek to fault find in other people's lives without first looking at themselves to take the log out of their own eye, you're going to hurt someone. You may not mean to hurt someone, but you're going to hurt someone. Because if you don't see the fact that you have a log in your eye, you're going to think, what kind, of a, what kind of a righteous person, what kind of a Christian, what kind of a human, what kind of a self-respecting woman or man could walk around with lumber in their eye? What are you, crazy? Here, come here. Let me try to, let me try to remove that from your eye. But you can't do it. Number one, your eye is obstructed. Number two, you're going to hurt them as you try to do that. You'll do so in a hurtful way. You won't do so in a fruitful way. And so if it ended here, you might think Jesus is like, wow, I've got no business removing specks from people's eyes because I have the lumber yard in my eye. I've got no, especially with the judge not stuff, don't judge, don't want to be judgy. With the measure you judge, you're right, I shouldn't be judging your lumber in your eye. I've got lumber in my eye. Let's just all keep on keeping on and just not talk to each other. That's actually not what the text says. And so I bring this text up because verse 5, Jesus says what? You what? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then what? You will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So notice from this text, in no way is God saying, you shouldn't be about taking specks out of people's eyes. You should mind your own business. That's actually not what it says at all. I can't see what's in my teeth. I have no idea if there's a mark on my head. Like, I, I won't know that if you don't tell me. You won't know it if I don't tell you. We do well to love each other and to speak to one another and to help each other remove the specks from each other's eyes. As long as first we remove the log from our own eye. Because then you will see clearly, verse 5, to take the speck out of your brother's I. And quite frankly, he'll do so in a way with a lot more grace. 
Because here I am like, oh. I got sawdust like right, like I'm still wiping it off. It just happened. And now I'm going to see clearly, but I'm not going to judge you as I take a speck out of your eye, right? Because who among us? I just removed a log from my eye. You're good. Let me help. Yeah, you're no judgment, but I want to help you remove this speck from your eye. I'm not going to take a log out of my own eye, wipe away the sawdust and be like, hey, idiot, look at you. (laughs) No, fresh on my mind is that I just removed lumber from my own eye socket. And so, yeah, who among us doesn't have to do this every once in a while? Here, hold still. I love you. Let me help you remove that from your eye. And so we need to guard against what I'm calling judgmental hypocrisy. Judgmental hypocrisy. It's not that we can't judge one another. We actually need each other to do that. But to do so unaware of our own shortcomings... Uh, to do so unaware of our own uh, limited abilities to discern things, to do so making assumptions and not asking questions, to do so uh, thinking that we're wise in our own eyes and that the way we see things is clearly right, we might be walking around like this saying, hey, you got a speck in your eye. And Jesus calls people, who seek to remove specks from others' eyes before they remove logs from their own, hypocrites. And the way we don't do that is by first looking at ourselves, removing the logs, seeing the lumber in our eye as huge and the lumber in somebody else's eye as minuscule, and treating them accordingly. Back to our text in Luke chapter 12. At the end of verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Verse 2, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Really powerful language there. Private rooms, the innermost room. Uh, where people would hide valuables in their homes, that the center of their home so that it wouldn't be affected by the weather and uh, other things that might be more towards the perimeter of their homes. What you have said in the most private rooms, what you have in there would be exposed for all to see. Jesus is saying that which people have done their best to make sure nobody knows, their best to hide away, that which people have done their best to tuck away in a secret place in their lives, God will uncover, God will reveal God will take out of its tucked away place and no longer allow it to be a secret. In other words, while hypocrites may enjoy some level of success in their deception, in their secrecy, in their double life, nobody ultimately gets away with hypocrisy forever. That which was hidden from people, even hidden successfully from people, will ultimately be uncovered by God. Now, sometimes that happens in this life. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear 
later. Sometimes it happens in this life where somebody is, I mean, we've, we've all seen it in our own lives. Sadly, we might've even experienced it in our personal life, but you certainly see it in the news of someone who has said one thing, but they're exposed to do, they're exposed to something else. And now they are forever known as the liar and the hypocrite that they are. Sometimes that happens in this life. Sometimes it happens in this life, but not in the life of the hypocrite, right? Allah, Jeffrey Epstein and Ravi Zacharias. And so sometimes that happens in this life where people see, but they've gone on. But their secret life has been revealed. Neither were alive to see their sin exposed, but it was exposed nonetheless. And so this is just a question that you need to consider and that I need to consider. What about you? If you were found today to be a hypocrite, who would be impacted? Think of your influence. Think of your care. Think of your, uh, the sphere that you have people in your life. Think of your family. Think of your witness. Think of your work. Think of your class. Think of your school. If today you were found out to be a hypocrite, who would be impacted? It's worth thinking through, but there's actually an even more important thing to think through, and that brings us to our third point. As we think through being a hypocrite, we need to fear God more than people. When it comes to hypocrisy, it is important to think through, wow, who would be hurt? Whose faith would be shattered by the shockwaves that went through their lives as someone's sin was exposed, as someone double, someone's double life was exposed? But Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, but after that have nothing more that they can do. It reminds us of Proverbs 29 and 25 that says, The fear of man lays a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Fearing what other people think will only get you so far, and in fact, it will ultimately lead to a trap. And the reason it will lead to a trap is because uh, fearing other people and what they think, it's actually a terrible motivator. Uh, If you're the only motivator upon me living a right and good life, or you're the only motivator upon me doing the right thing, Uh, When you fail me, I will ultimately fail. I'll use that as an excuse. Well, I thought we were doing this together, but then she did this, and so I guess we're not in this. And so all of a sudden, I was going to be honest with him, but he wasn't honest with me, so I'm not going to be honest with him. I would have forgiven him, but he didn't forgive me, so I'm not going to forgive him. See, so we're, we're inconsistent as people, and we love to, I've said it before, we love to rationalize where we make rational lies. And we're like, I know I should do this, but based on what they did, this is, this is different. And all of a sudden we do this mental math that makes sense in our own head to justify our own sins. And that's what it means when, when the Bible says the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. It ultimately won't deliver. It won't motivate you towards doing the right thing. And that's why Jesus says in 12, uh, Luke 12 verse 4, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. I mean, they're, they're, they're limited in what they can do, right? At the, at the end of the day, the most they can do is kill you. 
And in our own lives, I don't, I don't forgive Sarah because she deserves it. She doesn't forgive me because I deserve it. We don't try keeping score on one another, or at least we shouldn't. We forgive each other because we've been forgiven by Christ, who's never changed, will never let us down, and it's in eternity past forever. We've been forgiven. That's why Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, and it doesn't stop there. Just as God in Christ forgave you. And that's not a marriage verse, that's a relationship verse. We need a better motivator. We don't just fear people and what they think and what they'll do and what if they catch me and what if they find out. It's an important question to ask as we think about the impact it can have on people, but it shouldn't be our primary motivator. Uh, Luke 12 verse 5 says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is bringing it right back to God. It's one thing to be found out that's terrible. It's one thing to negatively impact people's lives and, and, and rock their faith. And people who trusted you now can't trust you. That's all terrible. But that in and of itself will not motivate you to avoid hypocrisy. What will motivate you to avoid hypocrisy is not fear of man, but fear of God. Knowing that God sees everything. Knowing that God is omniscient. He knows everything. Knowing that God has the ability to not only end your life but to cause second death and send people to hell. That's the fear that motivates people. And that's a fear that will never change because God will never change. And so you can rationalize your way out of like, yeah, it would affect people, but they probably won't ever find out they're limited. Yeah, if I live this double life, it's bad and I probably shouldn't. I should repent of it one day, but it's going pretty well. And no one seems to be getting hurt and only I know and this person knows. But when we're reminded of the fact that It's not primarily about who knows on earth, but that God at all times knows and watches and sees. That's what puts the literal fear of God. It's not an expression, the fear of God into our hearts and our minds. That's why the writer of Hebrews says what is said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But here's, here's the thing. Your response to God's knowledge, that he knows all things, omniscience, right? The fact that God sees all things, his omnipresence, he's, he sees everything. The fact that God holds your eternal destiny in his hand and has complete control over it. Your response to those things, God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, and the fact that God has your eternal destiny in his hands. Likely the gut feeling that you think that you feel when we talk about those things is a good indicator as to where you stand with the Lord. See, hypocrites don't like that. You know God sees everything. Yeah, I, I do know. I'd rather, can we maybe talk about something like, you know God sees everything. Yeah, wow, who? You know, God's everywhere. Oh, yeah. Wow. Because, you know, you, whatever, successfully delete your web history, but it's not like God doesn't know, right? You successfully maintain this relationship on the side, but it's not like God doesn't know. You pulled a fast one over on the IRS and lied about something, and congratulations, you confused our government. Like, that's hard to do. And, but in reality, like, that's small change, but 
God knows. And you're like, yeah, I don't. When you, if, if what is struck into your heart is a discomfort, uh, fear of judgment, wondering where you stand with the Lord, there's likely something in your life that you want to take a look at. Because for Christians, God's omnipresence, God's omniscience, and God's control of our destiny, we not only don't get afraid of that, we rejoice over that. We love that. We love the fact that, and so, and that's our, our final point, right? It's, it's the same reasons others fear God are the reasons we love him. Uh, we are not, verse six, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? So sparrows were like these, well, they're sparrows, right? They're just these little common birds that you can get them a dime a dozen. Actually, you can get five for two pennies. So, I mean, they're just everywhere. There's nothing terribly special about them. Not one of them is forgotten before God. That's a reminder to us that, wow, God knows everything. He knows everything about us. He loves us so much. As common as you may feel, uh, God knows you and loves you and and knows everything about you. You will never be forgotten by by God. And so all the hypocrites like, wow, God knows everything. The Christians like, I love that God knows everything. I love that there's nothing that escapes his knowledge. I love that when I'm confused, God is not. I love that even though I don't have the answers, there's someone in heaven who does. And so that very same thing, you have omniscience. Boom, God knows everything. And the Christian's like, oh, that's kind of awkward. I mean, the, the, the hypocrite's like, oh, I don't know if I, don't know if I like that. That's really because I'll be find out. And the Christian's like, oh, I love that he knows everything. I love that he knows everything about me and loves me anyway. When you think through his omnipresence that he's everywhere in all places at all times, his, he sees everything. The hypocrite's like, oh, even in the quiet of just me, he's there. Yeah, yeah, he's there, bro. He's right there. With that conversation that you had that nobody else knows with, except the other person, that you're living this way here and you're living that way there, he's there. He's there at all times. We as Christians are like, we love that we're never alone, that even when we're alone, we're never alone. We love that he knit us together in our mother's womb that even before we were known, we were known. We love that no matter where we are on God's green earth, no matter what we're going through, we're never truly alone, even if we feel alone. We love that. The hypocrite says, God holds my eternal destiny. He has the power to send me to hell. The Christian says, God has the power to send me to hell, but he saved me anyway and he's given me heaven. We love the fact that Jesus Christ has control of our eternal destiny. It doesn't strike fear within us. It strikes a, a good fear and sense of awe, of love, of a desire to worship our Lord and Savior. Insignificant as sparrows were, common as they were, not one of them is forgotten by God. And the same could be said for his children. Verse 7, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered probably strikes home more for some of you than it does me, but still it makes, it, it makes sense. Every detail about every, every, there's hair here. All right. He knows how many are here. I have no idea how many pores I have. God's un, not confused by that question. I don't have any eyelashes I have. God's like, I know exactly how many I made all of them. I don't, I don't, I don't have any taste buds. I don't know where to be. God knows all of that about me. And so Jesus closes by saying, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so if you're sitting here today 
and the fear of God, literally the fear of God, has struck you, I want to encourage you to lean into that. Lean into that. Don't harden not your heart. Uh, Don't just brush it aside. If God has used his word to strike fear into your heart today because you've realized that he limits and order, that lock, L-O-C-K, limits, orders, controls, and knows all things, you realize his sovereignty, that actually doesn't bring you comfort. That actually brings you a lot of fear and concern. That could be because you're living a double life and God's calling you to repent because you're not honoring him with your with your life and with your walk. He's not calling you to be perfect, but he's calling you to repent. Or it could be that you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and so you have every reason to fear God because, make no mistake, if you die without Christ, you will go to hell. That's not a scare tactic. That's, that's the truth. That's why Jesus says, fear him who can do that, that he will do that. And so it's my hope and prayer that as we hear these words, we don't think of the other hypocrites out there. We don't think of the celebrities out there. We don't think of people that we know have been hypocritical and be like, oh yeah, like that girl, like that guy. But that we think of ourselves, that we seek to, before looking at the speck in other people's eyes, we remove the log from whose eye? From mine. And so that hypocrisy would not be named among us that we would be aware of it in other people and be able to hold true to God's word, but also live lives that are pleasing to God. And the only way you can do that is through Jesus Christ. And so the bad news is, if you are living a double life or you're just not with Christ, uh, the bad news is you uh, are hell-bound and hell-deserving. And you will be sent there should your life end with no means of escape uh, there's, you know, there's always tomorrow. There's actually not always tomorrow. Not a scare. To, it's just the truth. There's not always tomorrow. The good news is today you have that chance. The good news is today you still have life. You still have a heart that's beating. You still have breath that is coming in and out of your body and you can cry out to God for salvation and he will hear your voice, forgive your sins, adopt you into his family and give you all the hope that brings joy to your mind when you think about the fact that he knows all things, that he is always everywhere, and that he holds eternity in his hands. Father, I come before you asking that you would do what only you can do, that you would cause the word preached generally to be preached personally, to be preached specifically in a way that I never could do. But you can. It's not at all hard for you. Speak to people personally. Cause your word to impact them on a personal level to bring about application in our own lives for our good, for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.